Are we on? Welcome to the Journal of Special Operations Medicine. I'm your co-host, Alex Merkel. And I'm Josh Randles. And this is where evidence-based medicine meets unconventional warfare. Hello and welcome to the inaugural podcast for the Journal of Special Operations Medicine. I'm Dan Godby, the medical editor of the journal. We hope these podcasts provide you additional insight and a concise summary of selected articles from each quarter's edition. As always, we welcome your input and your critiques. In particular, we'd like to hear from you guys in the field with articles of interest to the frontline medical provider. Again, thank you guys for your interest in the Journal of Special Operations Medicine. We look forward to hearing from you guys about our new podcast. The opinions or assertions contained herein are the private views of the hosts and are not to be construed as official or as reflecting the views of the Department of the Army or the Department of Defense. Hey, Alex. Welcome to the fall edition of the JSON Podcast. How you doing? Hey, man. Happy Thanksgiving to you. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving to you. You have anything interesting happen this week? Well, uh, you know, I haven't actually been doing a lot of clinical shifts lately. I've actually been doing a fair amount of traveling and lecturing and teaching uh, some of our soft colleagues and some of the sister branches and you know and taking a step back from the crazy day-to-day world i gotta say we uh pretty lucky folks we have probably the greatest job in the world and just happy to do it happy to take care of the folks and really excited to share some of our insights with uh, everybody else and hear back from them about uh, their perspectives of these interesting articles we've got this month yeah that's right so let's go ahead and get right into it So this edition, we'll be uh, spending some time briefly going over two articles and then spending a bit more time doing a critical analysis of some of the research in one of the other articles. And what's the first one we've got in store, Josh? So this first article, Alex, is Getting Tourniquets Right Equals Getting Tourniquets Tight by Dr. Piper Wall, Dr. Cherise Busing, and Dr. Cheryl Saha. This article is a review of the literature attempting to discuss three topics. The first is to show the lack of proper tourniquet application knowledge and the prevalence of less than ideal tourniquet application technique. The second is to inform the reader of the current ideal tourniquet application technique. And the third is to encourage the development and use of objective measures of the ideal tourniquet application technique. The researchers searched PubMed for articles discussing emergency limb tourniquets from January 2007 to August 2018 and then looked at tourniquet videos from Stop the Bleed and then other videos found online by searching Stop the Bleed videos. Lastly, they looked at training slides for the CAT tourniquet, which they stated was the most common tourniquet in pictures, papers, and videos. This is a very thorough review of the data that they identified in their search. The article is long, but well worth the read. In the article, you'll find a table with a short description of the articles that they read, as well as pictures of optimal thigh tourniquet applications for three of the tourniquets. I'd like to highlight a couple sections real quickly. The first is their discussion of optimal application surface and direction of pull. When I was initially being trained, I was taught to place the tourniquet high and tight and tighten until the bright red blood stopped, but no other specific technique. The researchers do an excellent job breaking down the how, and this information should be taken back to the team to train all comers in how to stop the bleed. Secondly, they talk about how tight the strap should be and how many windless turns should be performed, which is something that I rarely think about in tourniquet application. Again, their discussion is lengthy, but excellent and worth the read. Last highlight, they talk about training models and their shortcomings. The researchers do a great job breaking down one training model and how its pressure goals are based on an older study that looked at OR pneumatic tourniquets. 
They suggest, and probably correctly, that an accurate mechanism of feedback when training on how to use tourniquets will likely produce better application when time matters and the pressure is on. While the majority of the article is excellent, I wish their method section had been a bit more robust, showing their search terms and how they opted articles either in or out. This article is worth a read, and I think it was successful in discussing the relevant literature on the topics of interest. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I mean, you can tell that this is definitely another submission by Dr. Piper because of how robust it is, and she always does a great job with research. I particularly enjoyed the take-home message, the methodology that they used to solicit all of the different literature and the figures that they used. Uh, and I think um, anybody who teaches tourniquets would be remiss if they did not read through the discussion section. Uh, you know, for those of us who do teach tourniquets, either to teammates, to non-medical military providers through Stop the Bleed campaigns to uh, the lay public or even to first responders, I can tell you that we're probably doing it wrong, at least according to Dr. Craig's analysis. And uh, certainly last week when I got to help teach over um, 800 high school students here in Texas, I, I can say that we would certainly benefit as instructors understanding a lot of the principles that were put down here in Dr. Wall's uh, research. And I can't recommend enough some of the take-home points in the discussion section, which specifically say, apply the tourniquet directly on skin unless under fire, single route the strap through the redirect buckle, prevent the tourniquet from sliding around the limb while pulling the strap as tight as possible, which makes sense, but you know, when you teach this, that's what happens. What I really liked and I, I thought was an, an excellent insight is she says that your first pull should be tight enough to indent the skin, and that's when you know that it's tight enough. And that should only then require a single um, wrap on the windlass. And I, I thought all of those together were just outstanding and can't recommend this read enough for all of us out here in the community. Absolutely. So, uh, Alex, what one are you going to talk about today? Uh, next up is interventions performed on multi-purpose military working dogs in the pre-hospital combat setting, a comprehensive case series report by Reeves, Mora, Field, and Dr. Ted Redmond. So this is a interesting comprehensive case series report. And what they were specifically looking at doing is describing injuries, describing pre-hospital clinical interventions, and describing outcomes of traumatically injured military working dogs in a combat environment. To do that, they ended up using a convenience sample of a total of 11 canines from February of 2008 to December of 2014. And the registry that they used was the 160th SOAR database and air quotes, supplemental operational sources, uh, which I'm not necessarily sure what that means. Um, and so, you know, again, they looked, combed through all the data to identify their objectives as listed. And for the results, they found a total of 11 military working dogs. One of them was actually only treated for heat stress. So 10 traumatically injured working dogs. And I thought the results were pretty impressive. So they actually had eight of those 10 dogs sustained gunshot wounds, 30% sustained blast injuries. And that's if you can do the math there because one of them sustained both a GSW and a fragmentation wound, which is pretty phenomenal. And the interventions performed are available in table one there but you can see that there were a host of interventions performed at all levels of care. So actually at the point of injury en route and at the MTF. 
including uh, hemorrhage control, which was the most common intervention, mostly with dressings, it sounds like. And then I was, of course, pleased to see that they were also provided T-Tri-C cards, which, um, Josh, I know you and I, we always like to make Dr. Shackelford happy at the Joint Trauma Service and make hey, sure that... Happy Dr. Shackelford <laughs> is a good thing, okay? <laughs> Absolutely. Have you ever been yelled at by Dr. Shackelford? Once, and I totally deserved it, and I want it to never happen again. She only spoke strongly to me once. And, <laughs> and that was enough. That was enough. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so do your T-Tri-C cards, everybody, please. please. Yeah. Uh, help the sister out. <laughs> uh, and so... Um, there were these listed interventions, which I'm going to refer you to the article because I think this is absolutely worth reading. The other really interesting piece of data that got teased out here by this granted convenience sample is the provider type. So the ground medic provided the majority of medical care. That's 71% of the care at point of injury. In route care was provided by the flight medic 80% of the time, which is really astounding. And then the take-home message was that of these injured animals, there was a 50% mortality rate, which is just absolutely phenomenal when we consider right now that we have over a 90% survival rate for our injured service members. We are clearly not on par when it comes to our military working dogs. Uh, and so in the discussion, they did a really nice job going over a number of their insights into this. but. I would agree with them with the most important thing that they bring up, which is that you can see these non-veterinarians are overwhelmingly providing the majority of care to our injured service members, uh, the military working dogs, and they're, per their data, probably not doing it optimally because we're not training them. You know, I actually called over to the Lackland Schoolhouse where the Military Working Dog Center is for the DOD and specifically asked if there was a training opportunity to sit in on as a medical provider to learn more about combat care for our military working dogs. And, and their answer was that there really isn't anything available for us. And I think that's a, a pretty significant deficit that these authors brought up. What do you think, Josh? So I understand that this was, I think the the takeaway that you mentioned, which I took away as well, is that military medical providers are going to take care of military working dogs. So there needs to be some training. I didn't really think much of their sample. I know it was a convenient sample. It was the only sample they had probably. But uh, the 50% mortality rate that was quoted in the, in the article, the majority of those died on scene. So they didn't really, you weren't really able to tell if the appropriate things were done. That's a that's a problem that I hadn't necessarily with that. But again, the big takeaway is is that you or I, if we're overseas, if there are dogs in the field and they get hurt, they're coming to us. I kind of wish that, or I wonder even, if they would put almost like a, a veterinarian Braslow tape with all the animals or just specifically for, for medications. So it's mentioned in the article that they, we don't control pain very well because... We don't know how to tell when a dog is in pain. I almost wish that when these dogs deployed is that on every dog, there would be a little card on there with all the you know associated medications and dosages for providers to just pull out and say, okay, I've got this, let's use this. That's, that's my thoughts on the article. Yeah, and you know, I've actually um, spoken with some of the animal caregivers and they mentioned that they actually do that on a pretty regular basis. They have prefab 
cheat sheets essentially with them for dosages for their specific animal they're taking care of. Um, and, because I think it's a great idea. It sounds like perhaps this happens in a majority of cases when the handler and the animal get separated, which would not be at all surprising given the dynamic state of affairs that causes the injuries to happen. Yeah, absolutely. I, again, this is I think this is a future area of interest, if anybody's interested in it, develop training platforms or programs for military providers to learn how to take care of uh, military working dogs. Yeah, couldn't agree more. All right, Alex, it's time to do the deep dive. All right, so we'll wax poetic here on uh, the last article that we'll review, which is the use of tranexamic acid in the pre-hospital setting, a retrospective study by Justice Bover, uh, Karowski, Brandt, and Woods. So this was a retrospective single center study done at a single level one trauma center in Springfield, Missouri between October 15 and September of 2017, in which the authors attempted to identify all patients who met inclusion criteria for TXA administration and then find out what percentage of those patients actually received TXA administration, which is a, an interesting concept, considering how much we are attempting to uh, push forward the use of TXA. And so their inclusion criteria was one that I hadn't actually seen before. Have you seen this one? No. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, so it was a systolic blood pressure of less than 90. Yeah, got it. A respiratory rate greater than 30 or less than 10. Sure. And a heart rate of greater than 130. 130? That seem odd? It seems a little high. It seems a little odd. It seems a little off. And so their total number of patients that they were able to identify in their retrospective analysis included 408 what they call class one traumas. Uh, and if you wanna know what that means, you'd have to, again, reference their figure one in the manuscript. And then 2,036 class two traumas which again, reference figure two in the manuscript to identify what those encompass. Of all of those patients, we're talking uh, almost 2,500 patients. It looks like a total of just over 200 ground patients met inclusion criteria, but only two received TXA. And for HEMS, or actually I just found out we're not supposed to say HEMS anymore. It's supposed to be helicopter air ambulance, HAA. Mm air evacuated patients. Ha. Yeah, exactly. Um, there were a total of 43 patients who met inclusion criteria and a total of three who actually received TXA. So their uh, results are that this is a rather anemic administration of TXA. See what I did there? I know. I, I heard what you did there. <laughs> um, and really? then, yeah, they're their conclusion is that we um, could do much better in administering TXA to pre-hospital trauma patients from a civilian provider perspective. So with that said, let's go through our, well, it's not ours. We stole it. We'll mm. be fair. Yeah. Uh, the 11-point quality checklist for questions. Uh, so, Josh, was this a clearly focused question? I think so. Okay. And did the authors use an appropriate approach for the question? So I would I would quantify this. One, I think their study type was appropriate. However, I think their design for their study left a little bit to be desired. Yeah, agree. Was the cohort recruited in an appropriate way? Yeah, it was a retrospective study, so they just reached back in the medical data. 
Got it. And was the exposure accurately measured to minimize bias? No. <laughs> ah, moving on. Was the outcome accurately measured to minimize bias? So we have had some disagreements on this. I think it's fine. They had a yes or no answer. But again, methods. Words have meaning. Hmm. Uh, have the authors identified all important confounding factors? I think this is an area that really needed a little help. Um, so no. Got it. Okay, and moving on. Was the following of subjects complete enough? Yes. How precise are the results and the estimate of risk? I think the recording of the results are precise enough, but any sort of statistical analysis beyond that wasn't very well done. So follow on to that. Do you believe the results? I believe their results are correct from what they've measured. Mm. Can the results be applied to your patient population? I think from being a military PA and moving into forward surgical resuscitation, I don't think this study necessarily applies to my patient population. Hmm. And then last question, do the results of this study fit with other available evidence? No. Well, Josh, you know, to answer some of those questions that we've got about this manuscript, we are lucky enough to actually have first author Justice Beaver on the line here. He is both an EMT who uh, did much of this initial research and is currently a first-year medical student. And fortunately enough, he is smart to want to be going into surgery. So really excited to have him with us here today. Thanks so much for joining us, Justice. Thank you so much, Alex and Josh, for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Well, just like uh, always, we've got five questions that we came up uh, from your manuscript that we'd sure love your insight on for our readership. So question number one is, how did you come up with your inclusion criteria? It feels like it was the crash two criteria that was modified to your ambulances services uh, lowest common denominator. And as a follow-up, what is the receiving hospital's practice guideline for TXA administration? Yeah, so we actually did have to adjust the crash two criteria a little bit. So for crash two, they had a pulse rate of greater than 110, respirations greater than 30 or less than 10, and then a systolic less than 90. So our ambulance facility that we did this, they had the same systolic pressure and same respirations, but the EMS provider, basically, the guy that runs everything, he raised the pulse to about 130. So because of that, we had to raise it to 130 for the inclusion criteria. There is another hospital in Springfield, Missouri, that also has similar TXA guidelines. However, their pulse rate is 115. So if we kept it at 110 or 115, we would have had a lot of confounding factors because there would have been patients that would have qualified by that. But based off of the hospital or pre-hospital guidelines, they would not have qualified for the paramedics treating the patient. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. So some confounders there for different inclusion criteria. Yeah. Got it. And then for our second question, we were hoping you could help us. We said, uh, though you note that injury severity is a confounding factor, we see no discussion of the severity of injury in your data as administration criteria. Did you consider some method of excluding those who were only minimally injured? 
We did not come up with a method for that because what we were really looking to figure out was the patients that qualified and then received. We understood that there would be patients that qualified just on paper, but in actual practice really had no need for TXA, and we understood that, that would lower the amount of administration rates. But we didn't come up with a system to actually account for that injury severity. Got it. You mentioned the importance of tranexamic acid use within military special operations communities, but we didn't see a discussion of military tranexamic use or, or patterns uh, or comparison between your data and the current literature about tranexamic acid use in special operations. Did you look at any of the military clinical practice guidelines or frequency indications for tranexamic acid within special operations? So we did cite the tactical combat casualty care guidelines recommending one gram bolus in 100 mils. But we also uh, cited a study that was actually published in JSOM called Pre-Hospital Administration of Tranexamic Acid by Ground Forces in Afghanistan. This was published in 2017, and it was actually very similar to our study in that they were looking at the rates of TXA administration for these ground forces that were in Afghanistan. And I believe that, there, I don't have the data right in front of me, I believe they had about a 22% administration rate for qualifying patients. But one of the interesting things that they found was that they found that patients that had more external hemorrhaging had a much higher rate of TXA administration. And so that does pay an important factor for us because whereas in military trauma, penetrative trauma seems to be the most likely cause of trauma, whereas in the civilian setting, especially in Springfield, Missouri, blunt trauma by and large is the most common cause of trauma. And so you don't get a lot of external hemorrhage in the civilian care, which could explain why there was such a low TXA administration rate. Oh, fascinating. So it seems like your conclusion could potentially be that medics and first responders are using the external visible hemorrhage as their trigger really to start TXA, but we see that much less in the civilian population. Yes, that is what Shower's study kind of implies in that the patients in Afghanistan that had more external hemorrhage had higher rates of TXA, which we concluded implied that visualization of hemorrhage plays a key factor in provider recognition of administering TXA. Oh, interesting. What a, what a fun thing to find out. All right. And for our next question, it looks like you included patients in your research based on the initial set of vitals obtained in the hospital to determine if they were eligible for pre-hospital tranexamic acid administration. This feels a little odd. Can you explain why you structured your protocol that way? Well, unfortunately, you weren't really supposed to ask me that question. <laughs> no, uh, unfortunately, this is a weakness in our study. We simply did not have correlative, or we didn't have crossover for the data collection with the system that we used in the hospital. What we do know is that the current practices for our paramedics, especially for a patient that would qualify based off the criteria that we have for TXA, they should be doing vital signs every five minutes unless they're doing, you know, other procedures. And so they should be getting their last set of vital signs within a minute or two of actually arriving at the hospital. And then the hospital's protocol is to include, you know, to get vital signs very, very early on within a couple of minutes of the, the patient laying on the gurney. So yes, unfortunately this is a weakness. Don't think it invalidates the results because 
again, just because of the close tie-over between the paramedics' last vitals and the hospital's first. Oh, yeah, that's fair. Okay, that that makes sense. That was just a um, weakness of your data set, not necessarily a methodological weakness then. That's what I would think. Yeah, yeah, fair. All right, and then as a follow-on, we were intrigued by your statement, the conclusion that pre-hospital staff is unaware of the benefits of TXA is invalid. What evidence were you using to substantiate this? Was there some standardized EMS training provided without throughout your region to cover this topic? As you know, both Josh and I are also paramedics as well as doing trauma surgery. And, you know, when I went through paramedic school, we really didn't get much education on this. So where are your current pre-hospital providers getting their um, resources and research on this? Yes. So there, the two hospitals, the one that we actually did our research out of was Cox South. And then the other hospital in Springfield is called Mercy. Both of the EMS coordinators that are physicians do involve education on the matter study and on the crash two study for their paramedics so that the paramedics are aware of the benefits of TXA. That is why we said that the idea that these paramedics are not aware of TXA is invalid because we know that for the vast majority of the paramedics that were included in the study, a huge amount of them worked for either Mercy or Cox South. And so we know that if they worked for Mercy or Cox South, they must have received training of some sort on matters and crash two studies. So that is why we concluded that. Got it. So an organized part of their ongoing continuing education units have specifically included this topic? Yep. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Got it. Well, thank you so much for your time, Justice. Really appreciate it. So glad to have more pre-hospital representation amongst our future provider set. Thanks again. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, uh, Alex, so much for having me. Thank you as well, Josh. All right. Well, I think that's about all I got this month. I'm sure we talked too long. Have you got anything else to add, Josh? No. Well, actually, I do. If one wanted to go to the Special Operations Medical Association meeting, where is that this year? I'm so glad you asked, Josh. So for those few folks who live under a rock who have not heard, SOMSA is moving. Uh, SOMSA 2020 is going to be in Raleigh, North Carolina. We've already got a grid and a time on target for those folks out there. Uh, who have not yet heard, it is going to be May 11 through 15 at the Raleigh Convention Center. This will be a lot easier for our brothers and sisters in Fort Bragg to attend, and we're looking forward to seeing lots of old faces and hopefully lots of new faces there. So please do put in your leave request now for May 11 through 15. We look forward to seeing you then, and if you've got time, do recommend that you thumb through the journal uh, when you've got some downtime in the team room. Lots of other great articles, uh, research, case presentations, book reviews, and take-home points for you and the team so you can take great care of great guys. All right, I'm Josh Randles. I'm Alex Merkel. We'll look forward to talking with you next time. All right, Alex, now that we've answered our quality assessment questions, why don't we take a deeper look at this article? Checklist? Checklist. Quality assessment checklist? That's what it is. Quality assessment checklist. Or quack? <laughs> <laughs> That's going on the podcast. <laughs>